Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. It is Monday, April 26th. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Ironically, this is the day annually, which used to be known in Georgia as Confederate Memorial Day. I say ironically in thinking about the subject of our conversation uh, today. That changed when former Governor Nathan Deal uh, stripped the day of the Confederate Memorial aspect. And now it's known on state calendar simply as State Holiday uh, so welcome to a new day, at least in some ways, in the state of Georgia. Um, we're going to be talking today to Andrew Filer, author, photographer, his new book of uh, text and photographs, A Better Life for Their Children, has just been published. And before I introduce Andrew, and because it's Monday, my Monday partner, Jim Galloway, I want to read to you just briefly from the introduction to Andrew's book. This is a reminiscence by um, a a man who uh, is a legend across the country, a civil rights hero. And he recalls in the introduction his first day in school. Here's what he says. My first day of school was in many ways like that of any other child. I was up before dawn and fully dressed by the time the sun rose, way too excited to eat breakfast. My blue denim overalls, the same pair I had worked in all summer, were clean and pressed. I wore my favorite red flannel shirt, and on my feet were a pair of well-worn black brogans, the work boots I wore just about everywhere. Some of my classmates had to walk miles to and from school each day. For me, it was only a half-mile hike downhill to the Dunn's Chapel AME Church, beside which sat a small wooden building whitewashed and with large windows. It was beautiful, and it was our school. Those are the words of um, uh, John Lewis uh, recalling in the introduction to Andrew Filer's book, His First Day of School. We're going to talk about that school and almost 5,000 others which have similar heritage uh, with Andrew today. And of course, as I said, Jim Galloway, I'm glad you're here to be part of this conversation today, too. Thanks, Jim. No, I wouldn't miss this one for for, for, for love nor money. <laughs> Andrew, thank you for being here. Let's, let's, let me introduce you a little bit more formally. Andrew grew up in Savannah, a long line of Jewish Georgians going back, I think, four or five generations in Savannah. Andrew, your brother Bruce has been a guest on this show on a couple of occasions. He, too, is an author. And um, you have been working in the nonprofit community, in politics for many years. Your photographs have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Smithsonian, Slate, Oxford American, The Bitter Southerner, and so many others. You've had exhibitions at many, many uh, illustrious uh, venues, including the National Civil Rights Museum in, uh, in Little Rock, uh, Arkansas, and other uh, locations like it. Um, Andrew... Thank you so much for being here today. Bill, it's great to be with you. Thank you. And Jim, nice to be with you as well. So let me start, Andrew. Um, I, in, in, first of all, to have John Lewis, um, the late John Lewis, write the introduction to this book, um, 
it must have been one of the most special aspects of this entire experience for you. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I moved back to Atlanta in 1995. I have lived in the 5th Congressional District my entire time. That's 26 years. So I was a constituent of Congressman Lewis's for 25 years. And, you know, and I reached out to Congressman Lewis to ask him. He, he is one of the more well-known alumni of Rosenwald Schools. And I reached out to him and asked him if he would do the introduction to this book. And he said to me, you know, I'm not sure I'm comfortable writing about the history of Rosenwald schools. What I know is I went to school there. And so I said to Congressman Lewis, you know, I will have an essay in this book. There will be an essay from a preservationist, a well-known preservationist at the State Historic Preservation Office, as well as an afterword from the person who heads up African-American preservation at the National Trust. We have plenty of people writing about the history of Rosenwald schools. Congressman, what I want you to do is what only you can do. Bring me into that classroom. What was it like to go to school there? And talk about the role that education played in your life. And he said, oh, I can do that. And so I was with Congressman Lewis in his office, working on this introduction with him and ultimately shooting his portrait that appears in the book on October 29th of 2019. And it was exactly two months later that he uh, announced his diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. And while, you know, this was a photographic journey for me and a, histor and a historiographical journey for me to have had that extraordinary opportunity to work one-on-one -on -one with Congressman Lewis on his reflections uh, and his uh, his passions was just one of the most extraordinary gifts of this entire experience. So, Andrew, before we go too far into the show, we should tell people what basically your book is about. And I have to admit, Jim Galloway knew about the Rosenwald schools. I have to admit, until I got a copy of your book and read it, and by the way, it's, it's a gorgeous book, Andrew. You, you deserve congratulations for the wonderful photography, the amazing stories you tell. But I didn't understand the partnership, the remarkable visionary partnership between Booker T. Washington, the educator, founder of Tuskegee Institute, and Julius Rosenwald, the president CEO of Sears Roebuck. So that's really the starting point for the story. So why don't you help us understand how those two got together and what this great vision of theirs became? So Julius Rosenwald... Uh, is the son of Jewish immigrants who had fled religious persecution in Germany. And he grows up in Springfield, Illinois, directly across the street from Abraham Lincoln while he was resident, Lincoln was resident in Springfield. And Rosenwald rises to become the president of Sears Roebuck and Company. He leads Sears from 1908 until his death in 1932, and he becomes one of the earliest and greatest philanthropists in American history. And his cause is what later becomes known as civil rights. Booker T. Washington, born into slavery in Virginia, becomes a passionate educator and is the founder of the historically black college in Alabama known as Tuskegee Institute. And the two men meet in 1911. And you have to remember, 1911 is before the Great Migration because it doesn't begin until later that decade. And so 90% of African-Americans live in the South. And public schools for African-Americans are mostly shacks, with a fraction of the funding provided to the education of white children. 
And so in they, uh, Booker T. Washington invites Julius Rosenwald to go on the board of Tuskegee, which he agrees to do, but they keep talking about what can we do together. And in 1912, they create this program that becomes known as Rosenwald Schools. And they reach out to the black communities of the South. And they say, we want you to be a full partner in your progress. And if you, so if you will contribute to a school and we will count as your contribution, cash, land, materials, and labor. And if you will go to the school board, the white school board, and get them to agree to own, maintain, and staff the school, pay for the teachers, because these will be public schools. And we want to deliberately create black-white dialogue then Julius Rosenwald will make a substantial contribution towards school construction. And from 1912 to 1937, this program builds 4,978 schools across 15 southern and border states, and it's, it, it transforms America. It, it is breathtaking. It's breathtaking to think about what they accomplished. Um, Jim, let me bring you into the conversation. Just, you know, I want I want you to be here to talk to Andrew as well, but let's go back to what educational opportunities were not like for blacks um, in the late uh, 19th century and into the middle of the 20th century. Uh, Plessy v. Ferguson, which was the Supreme Court's ruling that enshrined separate but equal into law, had an impact on virtually every aspect of institutional life, blacks and whites, um, and in schools, though, it had an enormous impact because it did create separate schools, but certainly not equal schools. And so no, it, black children – go ahead, Jim. Yeah. No, no. It, this, was, this was in the mid-1890s, uh, mid and, uh, and uh, it, it green-lighted Jim, Jim Crow across the South. And, of course, I mean, transportation was one big issue. Uh, uh, access to to retailed merchandise was another one, uh, and we can get into that later. Uh, but education, of course, was the big one, and 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 uh, you you had you had school systems across the south the south that wouldn't have any that didn't have any uh, facilities for for African American students, uh, and then you had then you had the 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 ones that were just uh, maybe not even second rate, third rate, fourth rate. You know, they, they they would get cast off books from uh, from from the white system, uh, and uh, it was it was it was just a a, a miserable spiral of of poverty. So, Andrew, this is what, in many ways, one of the things that Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington were responding to. We've got to find a way to give black children decent educations. All right, so that happens. And you decide it's time to go out and document the schools that are still standing. In some cases, the building's still in use. In others, they're piles of rubble, as we see in the photographs in your book. Um, that uh, You traveled, what, 25,000 miles, I think you said, to shoot photographs of these schools uh, all over. They were in the south uh, and, and in the border states. And you went everywhere to see what you could find was left of what? I think about 500 that are still standing in some form or another, right? Yeah. So I'll go back and, and just pick up one of the things that you said earlier, Bill. Sure. I found myself in early 2015 at lunch with a woman named Jeannie Syriac, who originated the role of African-American heritage specialist at the Georgia State Historic Preservation Office. 
And she was the first person to tell me about Rosenwald schools. And I was like, how could I have never known this story, right? I am a fifth-generation Jewish Georgian. I have been a progressive activist my entire life. The pillars of this story are the pillars of my life. And I came home from that lunch, and I Googled Rosenwald schools. And what I found was that there were a series of, uh, of books on the topic, but there had not been a photographic account of the program. And so I set out to create what turns out to be the first comprehensive photo account of this, uh, photographic account of this program. And as you said, I, uh, it was very clear to me from the very beginning this program was in 15 states. It had to, my effort had to encompass all 15 states. And so I traveled to all 15 states. Um, I drove 25,000 miles over three and a half years of the, the original 4,978 schools, about 500 survived. Only about half of those have been restored. And I shot uh, 105 schools, uh, both interiors and exteriors, schools restored and yet to be restored. But the emotional heart of this story became the people that I met along the way, former students, former teachers, people who are trying to preserve these schools. And so I captured that part of this, uh, this journey and their stories through the portraits, um, through portraits. But I, I, I'd simply add one more thing. This, on one hand, this is a book of photography. But I came across so many extraordinary stories that I uh, felt compelled to write what turns out to be a short story that goes with every photograph or pair of photographs, uh, because there are schools here that are directly connected to the Trail of Tears, to the Tuskegee syphilis study, to Tuskegee Airmen, to Brown, the legal case of Brown v. Board. And so all of those stories and the, and the weave of Rosenwald schools into this fabric of American culture um, are told in this book. Hey, Andrew, yep. if I could, if if I could uh, jump in just with a, with a couple quick questions. Number one, uh, the, the one that 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 uh, that I really have is is does John Lewis's school still stand? Did it, it survive? Not. It did not. Uh, that's a, that is just a terrific shame. Then, secondly, I, I notice that that uh, I think virtually virtually all of these photos are in black and white. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Why that's a really that? good. That's an important and really good question, Jim, because so my process is to read and shoot and shoot and read and the reading informs the shooting and the shooting informs the reading. And very early on, I came across this extraordinary story of the role that photography actually played in shaping the history of this program. The program begins with a pilot of six schools, all close to Tuskegee, so that Booker T. Washington and his team can keep an eye on this program. And Booker T. Washington has these photographs made of the students and teachers standing proudly in front of their school. And he sends them to Julius Rosenwald, who writes back that he is so moved by these images that he, will, he is committing to expanding the program. And these images continue to be made, <clears throat> excuse me, throughout the history of this program. And they become an important element of the visual narrative, the visual history of this program. And so it was an honor of those that I decided to shoot this entire body of work, both horizontal, because that's the that is the linearity of the architecture and the linearity of these images, and in black and white. Um, all of my previous bodies of work have been in color. Uh, but I felt that black and white was the right way to tell this story visually. 
you know, one of the things that I it, it stood out, from, and there's so many wonderful photographs in this book, Andrew, but as long as you're talking about the pilot program, um, was it the, the Rose, Rosenwald Hall in Seminole County, Oklahoma, I was really touched by the photograph of that uh, building uh, because it reflects the architecture of the Southwest in such a, a, a vivid way. Am, am I right? That was what was that one of the pilot schools? Have I got that right? Yeah, the pilot schools were all within one or two counties of, of the location of Tuskegee. But the school, oh. but you are correct that um, some of the schools in the border states do have slightly different architecture than the school. The schools yeah. in the South very consistently had these like very large windows to let in lots of light. But um, the there's a, some schools in Maryland that had smaller windows and shutters because it's colder and the walls have to be structured differently to adjust to colder winters. Uh, and the, um, the Rosenwald, what becomes known as Rosenwald Hall in Lima, Oklahoma, uh, is brick, and it's one of the earliest known brick Rosenwald schools. These prog- these schools nor- oh. in the early days were one and two, uh, three teacher white clapboard buildings. By the end of the program, they're actually incentivizing brick construction because they realize these pro- these schools are actually going to be around for a while, and so you end up with one, two, and three story red brick buildings. But that incentive doesn't kick in until 1928. Rosenwald Hall is built much, much earlier than that. I, I, I realized that um, I, I think, now I think I'm on track. The Lochapoca School yes. uh, was actually the first school in the pilot. And the reason I wanted to mention it is because the total cost, you tell us, of that school, putting building that school, was $942.46. The black community contributed $150 to the project. Whites in the community, $360.00. And, because, and, and Rosenwald himself wrote a check for $300, and the school opened in 1913 and was still sta- in use, you tell us, until the late 1950s. That's yes. remarkable. Well, I think the, the, the genius of this program, and it is, a, it is the genius that Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington crafted together. Look, think about that structure. It is one of the earliest challenge grants. They didn't even have the term challenge grant back then, but it's a challenge grant. It is a public-private partnership because the public school system has to be part of the program. Um, and Julius Rosenwald also was innovative. It's become very fashionable today for philanthropists to say that they want the funds to be given away within X number of years of their death or in their lifetime. Julius Rosenwald is the first major philanthropist to do that. He said he mandated that all funds must be given away within 25 years of his death. And so both the the structure of this program and the fundamental orientation of the philanthropy model here, engaging the the beneficiary in uh, in their own progress is is hugely important. It's a milestone in the history of American philanthropy. Uh, Andrew, we mentioned John Lewis. Uh, who else? Who else in, in, in that we might recognize uh, benefited from from these schools? So there are um, one of the legacies of this program is that many of the foot leaders and the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement come through these schools. Medgar Evers, Maya Angelou, all, uh, four or five of the members of the Little Rock Nine who go on to integrate Little Rock Central High School all attended Rosenwald schools. 
but then there is the second generation effect. So, for example, there are ancestors of Spike Lee, former <laughs> Attorney General Loretta Lynch, uh, who went to, and in fact, Oprah Winfrey has an ancestor who was involved with Rosenwald schools. You, you, um, you talk about famous people who have some connection, either went there or, you know, uh, have a co- different connection. You tell us that Valerie Jarrett's, I think, great-grandfather was the architect who began the project. And there was something about the project. It, the, 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 the requirement was these buildings were supposed to be modest in design, right? Humble and uh, very kind of straightforward, I think, is a word that I would use to describe them, right? Yeah. And that was Valerie Jarrett's great-grandfather? Yes. Yeah, so um, Valerie, Jarrett's, Valerie Jarrett's great-grandfather was a man named Robert Robinson Taylor. He's the first African-American to attend MIT and the first accredited African-American architect. And he is hired by Booker T. Washington to be the chief architect and an architect in architecture and structure, uh, instructor at Tuskegee. He designs most of the famous and beautiful buildings on the Tuskegee campus. And he leads a team of architects to design the first round of Rosenwald schools. And he lays out a certain architectural language. It, this is essentially, remember, this is the progressive movement. This is architecture in service of education. Big windows to let in lots of light because at the time, most of these schools did not have electricity, right? Um, Outhouses, privies, which are actually designed in the manual so that they are properly constructed. Those are are away from the building, right? Um, Cloak rooms, so that dirty outer garments will be kept in separate spaces and not dirty the educational spaces. Uh, Potbelly stoves that keep the the school, the classes, classrooms warm, uh, during uh, winter months, and they vent through these brick uh, brick chimneys. And then, and really significantly, room dividers that are a series of folding doors that keep the classrooms separate during classroom hours that can be folded back and to open up the spaces so that they can be community gathering spots uh, outside of education hours. These basic principles are laid out by Robert Robinson Taylor in 1912, and they persist through the entire program. But overall, there is this other standard that he sets, which is that these buildings are to be modest, and they're to be modest for two reasons. One reason they're to be modest is to save cost. Another is so that they don't provoke the ire, otherwise known as arson, from the local white citizenry, and and were, were they successful in that end? I mean, I mean, did you have any 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 targeted schools? So there is a history of of these. There is a history of some of the of schools burning. Um, the school in my book in from Brevard, North Carolina, is the second school on that location. The previous school burned down. Uh, uh, film director and Broadway director George Wolfe uh, is in my book. He was he attended a school uh, that was the third school. On, it's on the campus of Kentucky State University in Frankfurt. Uh, it was the third school in that location. The first two burned. Now, do we have evidence that any of those burnings were specifically arson? I have not found that in the literature. 
but they're considering that these schools did not have electricity, uh, considering that there is a history of burning, there's some dots to be connected. Yeah, uh, just roughly speaking, I mean, did, was there a standard uh, number of students that these, these buildings were able to serve at one time? Well, so the schools are, are, are laid out based on the number of teachers. So there's one teacher schools, two teacher schools, four teacher schools, uh, and uh, and so all the way up to 18 teacher schools. And it varies. But uh, what would, we certainly know that in most of these classrooms, the one teacher would teach, say, classes. And John, look, Congressman Lewis is the Duns Chapel School. Uh, there are there's it's a two teacher school. One teacher taught grades one through four. The next, the other teacher in the next room taught grades five through eight. And and there's and we have certainly lots of evidence of people students crowding into these classrooms. Fifty students in a room with one teacher, uh, but it varies widely by geography. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show. <clears throat> excuse me, out of the way. When we come back. Uh, Jim Galloway and I will continue our conversation with Andrew Filer, his new book, A Better Life for Their Children, Julius Rosenwald, Booker T. Washington, and the 4,978 schools that changed America. This is Political Rewind. Andrew Fowler, the in the subtitle for your book, A Better Life for Their Children, you talk about the 4,978 schools that changed America, um, and that's actually based on a, a study. It did change. They did change America. You have a photograph in the book of two economists for the Federal Reserve who did a study of the schools and documented the impact these schools had on American life. Tell us a little bit about what they learned. So these are two economists at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago who have actually done five studies of Rosenwald schools. They are labor economists. And what their data shows is that prior to World War One, there was a large and persistent black-white education gap in the South. That gap closes precipitously between World War One and World War Two. And the single greatest driver of that achievement, and I think we have to acknowledge it is an achievement, is Rosenwald schools. And not only that, their data shows that there is a second-order effect. People who attended Rosenwald schools had children who were substantially more likely to have higher levels of educational achievement. People who attended Rosenwald schools had better financial outcomes, uh, and people who attended Rosenwald schools were actually more likely to leave the South as part of the Great Migration, where they had likely greater uh, economic outcomes. And so for all of those reasons, uh, the program is, is – there is data to support the argument that this program is transformative and helps set the foundation for the civil rights movement. And in addition, as we talked earlier – Many of the leaders and foot soldiers of the movement come through these schools, and so it's important foundation for the civil rights movement to come. Uh, Jim, I want to zero in just for a moment at least on the Georgia uh, 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 Rosenwald schools. Uh, uh, Andrew tells us that, that in Georgia, 243 Rosenwald schools were built in 103 counties across the state. I was struck by the fact that the school in Washington County, the principal, and I think 
uh, and spouse and a teacher and spouse are buried in the front of the school. That's how meaningful, Jim, this school was to them. And as long as we're talking Georgia stories, I was really taken by another story about the Friendship School in Chattahoochee County. Um, FDR, uh, when he would make his uh, uh, stay down at the, the uh, Little White House uh, in Warm Springs, got to know one of those schools and urged Rosenwald to build another school in Meriwether County, which ended up uh, bearing uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's name. And Jim, he actually donated the money that was needed to complete the project. That in and of itself is just one of the wonderful stories Andrew tells in his book, Jim. Yeah, yeah, Andrew, how many, uh, in Georgia, how many many of these schools are still standing? And and what is being done to, what is being done to, to, uh, to, to help uh, preserve them? So the last count that I'm aware of, there's about 40 schools that have survived in Georgia, uh, but most of those have not been restored. There are, um, there's, I have been to about 10 of those schools, uh, and there, and you know, some of them have been turned into there's uh, museums. There's one up in, in Bartow County, and uh, the Noble Hill School is this beautiful museum that uh, honors uh, that tells the story of African African American culture and life in North Georgia. Uh, there's one on the on the campus of Fort Valley State University, which is still an active um, educational space. Uh, the, but the the very last Rosenwald School in Warm Springs. Uh, was boarded up for a very long time and has recently been acquired uh, through the, with the assistance of the Georgia Trust for Historic Preservation. And uh, they're, they're working on plans to restore that and bring it back as a community center. Now, uh, now you've, got, of, you've, you've got a, an exhibit coming up in Atlanta uh, in uh, May, tw- May 22nd. And is, 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 is that geared toward uh, at least raising an air, uh, awareness, if not cash, for, for the preservation effort? So um, the let me take a half a step back. I mean, I think as a photographer who tells stories related to history, uh, what my images do, I think, and I hope, is bring people into the story. It's a, it's an, it's an, it's a way of, of finding a door into these important historical moments and, 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 and contemporary moments. One of the core messages within this story is the plea for preservation, because we had we had 4,978 schools. We have 500 left. We have lost 90 percent of these schools, but only half of the ones that survive have been restored. And as Bill mentioned earlier, there are times on this journey that I came across schools that had collapsed so recently that they were surrounded by emergency fencing or yellow caution tape. And I document that those images are included in this project because it, it, the, there is an inherent plea for preservation. These these buildings are the center of memory and community, and we need to preserve that part of our heritage. The exhibition um, is another way of bringing people into the story. And so there um, there is there's 85 photographs in this book. There'll be 25 in the exhibition, printed very large. Uh, and that exhibition opens May 22nd at the Center for Civil and Human Rights in downtown Atlanta. It will be up through December 12th. And then the exhibition will travel from there. And it will go to Charlotte, Memphis, uh, Nashville, New Orleans, Richmond, and then beyond. 
Uh, we should point out, Andrew, that your book has already published, by the way, we should point out, by the University of Georgia Press, which published your earlier book. And I, I don't want to let the show go by without um, noting that your earlier book, without regard to sex, race, or color, uh, focused on an abandoned campus of a historically black, where was the college in the earlier book um, that was part, it's, it's all part of your commitment to civil rights, uh, telling the stories of civil rights and education, among other things. Tell us just a bit about that. Yes. Yeah, so my first book, um, Without Regard to Sex, Race, or Color, is a portrait of the largely uh, abandoned campus of Morris Brown College here in Atlanta, one mm. of the six historically black colleges that make up Atlanta University Center. Um, and uh, Morris Brown had just gone into bankruptcy when I started on that journey with the collaboration of the college. And I'll simply I, I think it's really important to note that Morris Brown is now in the process of regaining accreditation, which is an incredibly important moment we should all celebrate. Um, but what I did with that book was use these empty educational spaces, spaces that we are all familiar with. We have walked these hallways. We have stood in these types of classrooms, but we're used to them being populated by teachers and students and the educational process instead of a space populated by ghosts. And what I, I used that framework to raise awareness about the central role that education has played as the backbone of the American dream. The commitment to public education in America goes back 376 years now to 1644 when the first publicly funded school was created in Dedham, Massachusetts. And there is a direct connection between that moment, land-grant colleges, which were created in 1862, historically black colleges created largely in the decades after the Civil War, Rosenwald schools in the early decades of the 20th century, the educational provisions of the GI Bill, which transform America from relatively poor to relatively prosperous to Brown v. Board of Education to the challenges we're talking about today, college affordability, college access. This 376-year tradition is a tradition at risk because of these affordability issues, and I think it, it, it is, impresses upon all of us the necessity of ensuring that education can continue to be the on-ramp to the American middle class. Uh, what I started to uh, mention before my mind wandered off under the sidetrack about the Morris Brown book is uh, you, you've already gotten, the book has already created your new book, Great Impact. I mean, I opened up my Saturday Wall Street Journal to a double page spread about this new book. So you have truly, I think, in an important moment in time, touched a nerve here. And, and let me just speculate on something uh, and then ask you to comment on it. You grew up Jewish in Georgia, you are certainly not unfamiliar with anti-Semitic bigotry. You have long been a champion of civil rights for African-Americans. So for you to come across the story of an African-American and a Jewish philanthropist who came together to create these schools must have been a remarkable moment of, of convergence. Absolutely. I think that, look, the, the Black Jewish Alliance that becomes one of the backbones of the civil rights movement begins with Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington. And there is a direct connection. But, and, and you have to admit, they not only have a partnership, they have a deep friendship. You can see it in their letters. And there's a direct connection from that moment to Ab Ab Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel 
marching arm in arm with Dr. King, who famously says that when he marches with King, I felt like my feet were praying to just earlier this year, where for two months, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock campaigned across this state together. And you can tell from their dynamic that that was not just political. That was a they developed a close friendship that is at work today in the United States Senate. Georgia sends its first Jewish member to the United States Senate, its first African-American member to the United States Senate. And the Warnock-Ossoff relationship stands on the shoulders of that of Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington. Yeah, if if uh, Andrew, if we could get get uh, uh, kind of flip the the script and get get a go back in history just a little bit, uh, th- this relationship between Booker T. Washington and and Rosenwald didn't just happen. There, Sears Roebuck played a, a, just a, a, an incredible role in the in 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 subverting Jim Crow in the South. Uh, do, do you get into that in 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 the book at all? You know. Um, I- there, there, as you know, Jim, there's this thing in politics called message containment. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I am certainly well aware. It's funny, actually. Uh, there, there's certain stories that I came across that I would love to have told and uh, that I didn't get a chance to tell. And some of them relate to this. So that, uh, what Jim's getting at is the simple fact that mail order uh, that was enabled through the creation of rural free delivery, which has its roots in um, a uh, a controversial uh, figure in in Georgia political history, enabled um, African-Americans to order goods through this catalog and avoid the indignities forced upon them when they tried to purchase goods from white merchants. The rules like you Um, can't try, you can't wear anything. Go ahead, Jim. Um, Galloway, you... You wrote a terrific column about that a while back. I want to get into that with you uh, and Andrew uh, when we come back from our final break of the show. Again, our guest, Andrew Filer, a better life for their children. We'll be back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. In a moment. So Andrew Filer, in addition to everything else about you as an artist, as a uh, writer and photographer, uh, you must have an amazing Twitter following because when I tweeted out that you were going to be on the show, I don't think I've ever gotten so many <laughs> uh, retweets and likes. Uh, I think we need to get to know you a lot better, better Andrew. It really is wonderful to see the community that uh, come together around you and your book. Uh, it, it has, the reception to this book has just been extraordinary, as you said. I mean, in, in my wildest dreams as a photographer, I certainly didn't expect a double-page spread in the Wall Street Journal that's just so, so exquisitely laid out. You just marvel at it as a work of art. Um, we have a piece coming in the May issue of Smithsonian Magazine, uh, and th- this book went into a second printing two days in advance of the original publication date. And so uh, it has been incredibly gratifying. And actually, I'll just... If, if you give me one second here, uh, Bill, I'll just read the, this. This is a s- solitary enterprise, right? 
I drove 25,000 miles largely by myself. Um, I sat at my desk for hours on, on Google and Google Maps looking for Rosenwald schools and stories associated with Rosenwald schools. And then you get, I get an email like this from a photographer in Michigan that I have never met and do not know. He writes, truly, this may be the best example of documentary work and, stor- and storytelling combined I have ever seen. You have captured the honor, oh. dignity, strength, and maybe even aspirations of a marginalized and disadvantaged group, completely humanizing their situation in a most compelling fashion. You know, wow. <laughs> you want that in your tombstone. <laughs> yeah. So, Jim, um, Rosenwald, you, you wrote about Rosenwald, and we talked briefly about it uh, before the break, but Rosenwald really, truly, truly was a visionary leader as a businessman. Um, as, as an, before there was what we call the civil rights movement, Julius Rosenwald understood what was important about finding ways to create equal uh, lives for African Americans in this country. Talk just a little bit about how he kind of transformed black uh, buying in the South with Sears. Well, well, he was he was look he was this was the he he headed up the Amazon.com of the 19th century. I think it's <laughs> it's it's very very to say say to that. Uh, uh, the, the story begins uh, back in in 1893. You had a a uh, a, a wayward Georgia politician named Tom Watson, uh, who would go on to infamy uh, as a racial p- polemicist. Uh, and uh, sparking the 1906 Atlanta riots, and uh, and and the lynching of Leo Frank, but it may perhaps his one good deed was he pushed through rural free delivery uh, when during the single term that he was in Congress, and this was this was the concept that you don't go to the post office, the post office comes to you. And and look in a, in a in a in a society that was rapidly shutting out African Americans, newly newly freed African Americans, this became a, a very very it became it was a lifeline. It really was a lifeline. You did not have you did not need uh, the 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 store manager's permission to 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 purchase this dress or or that tie uh, or this shoe. Uh, you 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 could you did not you did not have to to wait while every every white customer was served before they got to you. Uh, so it was it it became a, it, and 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 at this time remember I mean remember Sears just the role that Sears Sears Roebuck played in in, in even in the, in the West you could order an entire house from Sears Roebuck and they would deliver it to your doorstep or i i guess your soon to be doorstep uh yeah. but it was it was it was so so you had this so you had this this bond developing between african americans and 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 uh, rosenwald and 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 his company even before booker t washington uh and, and this partnership with booker t washington formed uh, i i i uh it lasted well into the civil rights movement. Uh, I, I spoke with with uh, with Andy Young. Uh, and this was uh, you're you're referencing a column that I did maybe maybe two and a half years ago, but uh, but uh, I was talking to Andy Young. Uh, he was a, a young pastor of two congregations in Thomasville uh, uh, back in the back in the late fifties, and and the the 
the Sears store, I guess it was uh, in, in Tallahassee. Uh, across the border, 60 miles away, was the only place that he felt safe in shopping. Uh, it, it, that that goes so so. It's it's it, it, the the relationship between Sears and Afri- African Americans is just so fascinating. Um, a- Andrew, I, I want to, uh, with the time remaining, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad that Jim talked about how important Rosenwald was even before. He met with Booker T. Washington, and they launched this incredible uh, adventure, the two of them. But um, do you, can you, can we pick out just a couple of the stories in your book that you came across? And I have one in mind because it relates to a Georgian. You, uh, well, you talk about Webster Wheeler, who grew up in Cassville, Georgia, and he was one, he was part of the Great Migration he went north, but something brought him back. Tell us just a tiny bit about his story. Yeah, you know, the, the Great Migration is just one of the transformative um, events in the 20th century of America. It is the largest move, internal movement of people in world history. When the Great Migration begins in the early, um, in the mid-1910s, 90% of African Americans live in the South. By the time the Great Migration ends at the end of the 1960s, 56% of African Americans live in the South. I want to jump ahead and acknowledge something incredibly, one of the most important things going on in America today is the reversal of the Great Migration. African Americans moving back to the South. It is transforming the politics and the demographics of Georgia. But <clears throat> Webster Wheeler embodies this story. He leaves Cassville, Georgia, uh, and goes and is part of the Great Migration, goes to Detroit, and has an entire career as a carpenter for Ford Motor Company, and then finds out that his tiny town of Cassville has been awarded a Rosenwald's uh, grant, and he moves back. And along with one other member of the community, single-handedly builds the Noble Hill School. And there is a photograph of Webster Wheeler that hangs in that school. And the important thing about that photograph is this. Isabel Wilkerson, whose book, Warmth of Other Sons, is the Pulitzer Prize-winning wonderful treatise on the Great Migration. Isabel lives here in Atlanta. uh, And she writes that when migrants went north, one of the first things that they did when they landed in their new city was had their portrait taken because it was a sign that they had arrived in their promised new land. And so that talisman of Webster Wheeler's journey hangs in the schoolhouse, which is now restored, which he helped build. Um, the, Jim, that just some of the remarkable stories in, in, in this book about the, uh, the passion with which people uh, came to the schools around the South. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's what's interesting here is, is that, you know, we all seek a certain commonality. Uh, it's become more and more important right now. And what, what, what I think this book really shows us is that are, 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 are whether you're uh, whether you're you're an immigrant, whether you're not an Im- immigrant, whether you came here voluntarily, whether you did not come here vo- voluntarily, education is, is 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 kind of universally recognized as the tool for getting ahead. 
Uh, and it was it, it it it's true. It was true when the Irish came. It was true when the Germans came, and it and it and, it, and it's true uh, when when slaves were given their freedom. The first thing they sought was an education. Yeah, Andrew, that's a theme that emerges time and time again in the stories of people who were part of the Rosenwald School. Yeah, absolutely. You have, and there's an important thread that I came across, and, and these, as, as I mentioned, I kept coming across the folks that had these connections to these schools. And what I found was students who became teachers, who then become the people in their community leading the efforts to restore these schools. And so, student becomes teacher, becomes the keeper of the flame of history and memory, and it's an inspiring. Um, it's an inspiring life thread that I came across time and time again. You talk about, you have a photograph of Charles Albert and Ernie Tyson, uh, who uh, they met, they ended up getting married. Uh, Charles Albert went into the army after the end of World War II. Ernie Tyson, his wife, became an educator. And when they got married, she insisted that he get a college degree, and together they became teachers um, and they're part of the Rosenwald School movement. That's just another one of the extraordinary stories in this book. They were uh, classmates in the in the Peck School in Fernandina Beach in class of 1949. Um, and Charles goes off to the army. Ernie uh, becomes a teacher. And they they on on Fernandina Beach is on Amelia Island, which has American Beach, one of the splack segregated beaches. And they go for this fateful walk on the beach. And I'm actually, this is so glad you brought this up because there's a wonderful twist to the story. I didn't get to fit into the book. They're, they're on this moonlit walk on Fernandina beach and they talk about laying out a life together. And Charles says to Ernie, you know, I don't really think I'm a college kind of guy. And Ernie says, no college, no Ernie. And Charles says, okay, I'll go to college. And they both become educators in the school that they attended and then roll forward and uh, Ernie, uh, the, the school closes, it's boarded up. Charles runs for mayor, becomes the first African-American mayor in, in Fernandina and leads the restoration of the school. And Ernie, start, in retirement, comes out of retirement and opens a library, children's library in her old fourth grade classroom. And the photograph of them is uh, in that classroom. Um, as we come to a close, uh, uh, Andrew, do you mind if I read a passage from your book back to you and Jim? Uh, Please. You say this. As I heard more and more stories about Rosenwald School uh, people, I came to understand that the people I met share something profound. They're part of a quiet, multi-generational movement, a movement that began with the dreams of slaves for book learning, continued during Reconstruction as freed blacks, young and old. And you go on for there to talk about, and we're running out of time, so I can't complete that. But the Rosenwald schools, which you document in A Better Life for Their Children, uh, tells the story of the quest for education that Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington were able to fulfill for thousands and thousands of black students across the South. Andrew uh, Filer, thank you. Jim Galloway, I'm completely out of time, but we're back tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. Till tomorrow, take care, stay healthy, wear your mask above your nose, and get the vaccine if you haven't gotten it so far. Take care, everybody. 